from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. So thank you very much. Evening, everybody. It's very impressive to see so many people coming for a relatively short lecture um, after hours, so to speak, and we are very thankful. Also to invite having people from IET and IMACE in addition to the Royal Aeronautical Society. That's really great. I'm glad to see this cooperation between the societies. I'm going to talk, as uh, was mentioned, on the larger unmanned aircraft flying beyond line of sight. That means essentially beyond 500 meters, if you go for a legal definition, what's beyond, uh, beyond line of sight. And Clive will follow then with a visual line of sight applications. Just by way of differentiation, on the left-hand side, we have, and there's a lot of acronyms here, and we'll try, Clive and I will try to cover the acronyms, um, and there will be questions after this session. After Clive's session, we'll also have a joint question session, but um, I will try and answer, uh, uh, come up with the acronyms. Of course, remote pilot aircraft uh, systems is the RPAS and vi uh, visual line of sight, and on the right-hand side, beyond line of sight. And on the left-hand side, this is the area that Clive will cover, is predominantly multi-rotor, Takeoff vehicles, but certainly not in exclusively. You find small planes that perform aerial mapping, for example. And on the right-hand side is primarily aircraft, uh, and I would suggest two-meter wingspan and above, uh, because these will be flying several kilometers up to, for example, a thousand kilometers quite readily. So they are very much beyond line of sight type applications. So. On the left-hand side, as I mentioned, um, will be covered uh, in the, in the uh, Clive will cover that, and I will cover the oil, gas, and mineral geophysical survey work that is, take, uh, takes place beyond line of sight, uh, pipelines. When I say linear asset, it's, for example, railways. If you're trying to monitor a long, long railway in Saudi Arabia or wherever, because we're talking about a lot of operations outside of the UK, then we're talking about a linear asset. I'll cover land and maritime border patrol and look at another application, emerging application, and that is in small cargo and also not so small cargo application. Now, there are other applications. It's limited only by the imagination of people in this field, so I don't want to suggest that those are the only applications. Um, so I'll, but I will cover those four for the sake of brevity. Right, this, to give you an idea, is the unmanned aircraft we've developed in the UK, six-meter wingspan. And we have two engines on the plane. That's primarily because the users have said to us that if the plane, for example, loses an engine, they still want the plane to carry on flying in a predictable manner. They don't want the second engine to take it to the crash site, and they certainly don't want the plane to crash. You may imagine beyond line of sight, we're trying to avoid injury to people, damage to property, and losing the payload. And I'll come to the payload. That is, a, it, we're talking about a commercial application, so money is important, and we don't certainly want to lose expensive sensors, not to mention the aircraft. If we look at a geomagnetic survey, and I'm going to use the terms geophysical and geomagnetic interchangeably. Geophysical also includes things like hyperspectral imaging, LIDAR survey, a whole lot of other surveys, but geomagnetic is the most common uh, application. What we find is, for example, and I think this microphone is, yes, I can walk away from this stage. We're looking at 20 to, for example, 100 kilometer square by 20 to 100 kilometers raster scan. The line separation, 200 millimeters, for, 200 meters rather, and covering the ground control station. This is typically in a remote area. So what we have is a vehicle, what we call the ground control station, GCS, you see over there. 
and the plane essentially goes and performs a raster scan. Now clearly, in terms of reducing cost, one interesting uh, development that will follow is using multiple unmanned aircraft operated from one ground control station. But we're a ways off from that. We have to first get experience up on running a single unmanned aircraft or remotely piloted aircraft from the ground control station. And it flies vertically. Those are called control points. So we have quality assurance. We can check, is the magnetic field measured in the one direction the same as it is measured in the other direction? So we have quality assurance um, locations, and hence the vertical lines that the plane also flies. At the end of the day, the folks at BP, Shell, Statoil, wherever, would like to know what the geomagnetic and using the contour mapping, if, if you like, where the concentrations are of difference in Earth's magnetic field that will give an indication of if there's iron ore, for example, if you're uh, performing a survey in Australia or in Canada, and the concentrations of the iron ore, so you know really where the key places are to mine for <coughs> iron ore. Now, in some parts of the world, because one might say, well, just get out there and take a vehicle and go and measure it. What's the problem? We don't need aircraft at all. Clearly, there are dangerous places in the world and certainly some places where you'd like to look for minerals that haven't, for obvious reasons, been surveyed. And this, for example, is a support team, happens to be embedded with one of the geophysics groups, and that gives you an indication of the dangerous nature of this type of activity in some parts of the world. Not all, but some parts of the world. So if we say, right, we're going to use an airborne platform, What's typically done today is we have a huge plane, twin engine, you note, but that actually, the only thing that's being used here and from a sensor point, whoops, sensor point of view, get up my, are the magne magnetometer at the wingtips and the magnetometer at the ends. The cesium beam magnetometer, very high precision scalar magnetometer, but it does look ridiculous. If you see this huge aircraft using a lot of fuel, creating a lot of pollution, costing a fair amount of money, to perform a survey in which the instruments actually are very small. And it's a repetitive survey. It's going up and down a raster scan. So you can imagine if you're a pilot and someone says, I want you to fly a raster scan day in, day out on a plane like that. It is really painful. Then we start adding more complications for the would-be pilot of the small plane. We say to the pilot, actually, in fact, if we look at the resolution to be achieved by flying 20 meters above the ground, we can see it's far superior to the one on the, on the left-hand side. It's actually not that easy to see on this one, but it, believe me, the resolution is much higher the lower you are to the ground. So now we will suddenly say to the players, we're not talking about flying 1,000 feet above the ground or anything like that. We're talking 20 meters above the ground. This is really tricky. And we're saying, by the way, we'd like you to fly six hours a day. Um, <laughs> and suddenly, you know, the, the volunteers are stepping back thinking, well, I've got other things to do right now. We had another little complication, and we say, you know what, it would be a good idea if you could fly from midnight onwards at night time, because then we have low solar flare activity, low electromagnetic noise, all the, most of the, many people who might use, I was gonna say all the teenagers, but maybe not, people who might be using mobile phones on their own bed, so we have a much reduced electrical noise background. So you get far better measurements if, the, if that is performed, the survey is performed at night. So we're saying, what I'd like you to do is flying six hours a day, 20 meters above the ground, at night. <laughs> day in, day out. Six days a week would be good. And you can see that why there is essentially a huge fatality rate, sadly, among operators that are engaged in oil pipeline monitoring, that are engaged in geophysical survey work, for obvious reasons, any lapse of concentration, and bang, show over. And you're meant to do this day after day. 
And this is clearly an ideal operation, uh, opportunity for robotic aircraft who really don't care. They're running on GPS coordinates, uh, using uh, laser altimeters, for example, precision flying, and they can essentially do the, perform the raster scan mapping so much more easily than human being, beings can. The obvious question, and essentially it has been looked into by Fugro, for example, and some people have gone before, and then they've found that essentially regulatory issues, because there are serious regulatory issues to do with unmanned aircraft in the national airspace. And that has caused problems when people have got into the field too early ahead of the uh, evolving regulatory environment. So Fugro no longer involved, but that question has been asked, why not use unmanned aircraft? Now, if we are considering remotely piloted aircraft operating beyond line of sight, Clearly, we need a satellite communications link. If we're operating in a remote area with no communications infrastructure, so imagine we're talking about 100 feet, for example, or lower, 100 kilometers from base, and we need to legally maintain a link with the plane so we know where the plane is at all times, and at any time, we can call the plane back. Enter the use of satellite communications, and essentially what we're looking at and what is often used are aeronautical grade satellite communications. In this example, the Inmarsat system, where, for example, the plane, shown there on the, on the middle here, needs to maintain also contact with air traffic control. So what we have, the air traffic control people will say, we don't want to see any difference between your plane and a manned aircraft. And one might think, okay, fine. Until they come to say, well, now, if I talk to it on VHF radio, on the airband radio, and I say to the plane, I want you to climb to 5,000 feet, for example. The question is, how is that plane going to respond to that instruction? And the answer is, that plane then has to transmit the VHF signal through the, the Inmarsat system to the, ground, to the Inmarsat ground station. And in Europe, it's in Burum, in, in, in the Holland, in the Netherlands. It goes back up to the satellite, down to the ground control station. And the person at the ground control station then replies to the air traffic control and says, right, yes, sir, and gives the instruction that is heard there and acknowledges the instruction. That acknowledgement comes back, back to Holland, back up through the satellite system, back to the aircraft, back on the VHF radio, back to air traffic control. Now, one thing is, because that satellite is about 40,000 kilometers above the equator, it's a geostationary satellite. Very good coverage, not of the poles, but elsewhere it's very good coverage and very reliable. But there's a latency involved. And we've measured with people at Inmosat around about 1.7 second delay for this double hop. So going up, down to the ground control station, back up there to the uh, terminal. So you're looking at 3.4, 3.5 seconds total for signal going out to the ground control station, coming back to air traffic control. Not bad if you're operating in remote areas where it's not a congested situation, the air traffic control people will not hear somebody else and assume that you've not replied. But that's the way the nature of SATCOMs are at the moment. And that's, one of the, uh, that's just using contested service. We're not talking about using very expensive, dedicated voice lines or anything like that. We're just putting a voice over internet protocol, sending it, paying by the megabytes, rather than having a dedicated voice channel. Right, looking at the sensors, because this is essentially a commercial operation, and the sensors can be very expensive. So if you look at an example, left-hand side, hyperspectral imager, that's essentially, rather than red, green, blue of a camera, is essentially have a spectrum split into 256 different colors, and you're recording all of those images with all those colors, and then they can say, well, there's that type of rock there and this type of rock, if you look at that, that particular 
breakdown of the image. So that's on the left-hand side, the hyperspectral camera. Cesium beam magnetometer, very, very precise magnetometer to measure those magnetic fields and gradient in the ma magnetic field. And on the right-hand side, a geophysical grade uh, laser uh, radar, basically. It'll send a signal down, get the pulse back. You can look at all the reflection and the waveform from the reflection, so then you can decide this is the top of the trees, this is the ground, and you can essentially figure out what the, the tree height is and electronically strip away the trees so you can see the underlying terrain, if you like, using a LIDAR like that. But it comes at a quite eye-watering price. Put all those on a plane, and you can see that there's an incentive to... Well, RPA survivability is critical. You really do not want that plane to go down because that seriously impacts the business case. I'm going to look at the oil pipeline linear infrastructure, as say it's railway lines, anything that's linear, where the plane is going to fly along a long route. And it's like critical national infrastructure type monitoring. <coughs> what are we looking for? Combination of oil leaks, as you see in the top left-hand corner. And the sooner something can be done about it, i.e. the sooner we know about it, the better. So we don't want to wait for the plane to come back and tell us, by the way, 10 hours ago we spotted an oil leak, or... Ten hours ago, I don't know who saw that, but uh, this, gives you, this is a challenge for those machine vision experts in the audience, is can a machine vision program automatically detect that and relay that information? That's really tricky. But we want to know about that pretty quickly. You come back six hours later or whatever when the plane lands, and its typ typical mission is seven hours to ten hours, for example, then whoever's doing things to pipelines has disappeared, everything is old, it's not suitable. So we need a timely information coming over and basically that requires a lot of processing taking place on the aircraft because what we don't want is a lot of information being sent just the same old stuff we've seen that pipeline before we want anomaly detection statistically sensible anomalies to be processed identified on the aircraft and only that information sent through a satellite communications link so this to give you an idea for those not familiar with oil pipelines typically what you have is a pipeline to the side of a road, and you'll have maintenance vehicles going along the road, and that's called the right-of-way, R-O-W for short. And what folks would like to know or detect are vehicles and people in the right-of-way who may be there legitimately on maintenance missions or whatnot, or, or, what or they may be bunk what's called bunkering, siphoning oil from the pipelines. For example, in the Niger Delta region, it's a very profitable business to go and siphon it and fill up your tanker, and then you get $62 million per tanker, so it's a pretty good business to be in. Now, if you're looking at the requirements, if you have aspirations to get into the oil and gas uh, pipeline uh, uh, monitoring business, you go from extremes of temperature, ranging, for example, in Alaska, if you're looking at the Trans-Alaska pipeline, minus 40 degrees centigrade, to the heat in the desert of North Africa, for example, or the Middle East. You're looking at snow and ice, the presence of snow and ice, can the aircraft handle that, operate in that kind of condition? Abrasive sandstorms. And you could be operating in, in, if you're making one plane and getting certification, that uh, will t take a lot of money. So you don't want to have a particular plane that's dedicated for icy conditions, if you can avoid it, and another plane that's dedicated to high temperature. You'd like to have one plane that can handle high humidity, high temperatures, and low temperatures, and icing conditions. If you're looking at the sensors for pipeline monitoring, that is, in fact, you can get very high-performance commercial off-the-shelf COTS sensors these days, and uh, Canon have just brought out an eye-watering number of megapixels, 50 megapixel camera. It's actually going to be available in June, and the price range around about £3,500. 
And you can essentially also look at the lenses. And you know, the, I'm not trying to be a Canon salesman. We, uh, I used to own a Nikon, and we had a professional photographer identify the prime type of camera that one would use in this business. And he said, it's got to be a Canon, which was a shame, because when you buy these cameras, you buy a lot of lenses and a whole lot of other baggage that goes with it. And uh, so <laughs> that was sad. But we have used that since, and have to say that their Canon cameras are very good. You can get the modulation transfer function, MTF, curves for the lenses and the like on the Canon site in the USA and convince yourself that indeed the lenses are excellent. So we've selected based on MTF um, uh, information uh, the lens to be used and the camera. Uh, that's the one we will be putting on the, on the planes. Uh, and you can easily photograph number plates because what people want to do, and by the way, there is an aspect of data protection in this because you have to then tell the authorities how you're handling data, because what we're now collecting, as you can see down there, is personal information, number plates. We want to recognize people, so if we see people on the pipeline, we want to know who they are. Well, not us, we don't want to know, but the people who are managing the pipeline want to know. And so one has to then satisfy them how that data, how that information is being handled. So it is being handled in a responsible manner. We're saying who owns it, where it is, do we keep a copy, do we not keep a copy, and the like. So you do need to be careful of the all. Take note of the Data Protection Act in terms of the country in which you're operating. Right, now this may sound a little bit over the top, but the first time <laughs> when we were discussing with Shell Exploration in Rijksveik in Holland, the first question I had from the pipeline people were, how resilient is your plane to machine gun fire? <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> what is the problem here? And the problem is, for example, if you're operating in some parts of the world, where an AK-47 is almost a fashion accessory, folks will just take pot shots, and if you're trying to interfere uh, with their business operations, i.e. tapping oil from a pipeline, they'll certainly get out the standard weapon that is used, which is an AK-47. And we did some tests on a, on a firing range, and you can see that depending on the height of the plane and the speed and whether you're ready or not and whether you're expecting it to come, and so on and so on, that actually you could take quite a lot of hits. So one has to come up with these answers. And fortunately, we came up with the answer, well, it's a twin-engine plane, so if one of the engines gets hit, it's not a big problem because it can fly in a second engine, and that seemed to be okay. But you do get these unexpected questions, and you know, it may seem academic or it may seem ridiculous or some fictitious um, thinking, but this was the first question we had from the oil pipeline people at Shell. If we look at how pipelines are monitored today, top left, person walking along, and of course Shell said, there is a problem there. Clearly, if that person walking along encounters armed people at the pipeline, there's a big problem. If you're running along in a vehicle, and there, again, likewise, and Azerbaijan, right, fine, same problem as the person walking. In the US, that's $30 per um, uh, kilometer monitoring using a helicopter, so it's a high-tech but very expensive solution. And federal re regulations require all the pipelines in the US to be monitored at least once every two weeks a year. Typically, they're monitored every, every week, so if there's a problem one particular week, they don't fall foul of the regulations. And if you look at the number of uh, length of pipelines, oil pipelines, in the world, not saying that US regulations apply elsewhere, you can see there's very good business to be had monitoring oil pipelines. This was an interesting slide, came from Shell, because they've been involved in a project, uh, as have Inmarsat, in which we, which we are leading, funded by the European Space Agency, and they're interested in satellite communications and the use of um, bandwidth. And in terms of the priorities, and people sometimes think price must be the top priority. So I'm going to go to somebody like Shell and tell them I've got a really cheap solution, and I can guarantee you they'll tell you to shut the door on your way out because they're really busy people and they don't want to hear this kind of stuff. Their top priority is safety. 
And their view is, if you look at the fatal accidents per million flight hours in 2010, if you look at commercial airline globally, 0.9 fatal accidents per million uh, flight hours. Now, pop down just a little bit. Overall oil industry, and you just look at the, in fact, pipeline surveillance. Let's go down even there to oil and gas producers, OGP, or global, 43.6. Fatal accidents per million flight hours. So the problem there is, clearly, if Shell say to one of the employees, you know what, I'd like you to do some pipeline surveillance, they know that the probability of a fatal accident is far higher than a commercial airline. So in a sense, they could basically be accused of corporate negligence and suffer reputational damage. Big problem. And unless they have an alternative solution, that is what has to be. Now, I have to point out really quickly that when they're looking at these figures global, that is what's called also mom-and-pop operations. That's all manner of flying, no matter how regulated or, uh, or um, uh, professional it is or not. So that's all operations. But there still is a very high incidence of fatalities. And the view of the people at Shell is that if you use small unmanned aircraft, so you don't introduce a risk, you don't going to damage the pipeline or whatever, if you use small unmanned aircraft, you basically relocate the pilot, co-pilot, whoever, to the safety of the ground control station, and if the plane comes down and instead it's a remote area, the chance of it damaging property, injuring people, is very, very small. So essentially you've increased the safety by using remote unmanned uh, aircraft, remotely piloted aircraft. So that's their priority. First one, safety. Second one is accuracy. Clearly if the data is inaccurate, it's not worth even having. And only then do they say service cost. And the service cost, in their view, needn't, mustn't be higher than manned aircraft. So don't require it's lower, because often people will think, you know what, I've got to have a cheap and cheerful thing, go down to the hobby store and get a plane. Not interested. First of all, it must be safe. Secondly, it must be accurate. And after that, it shouldn't cost more than manned aircraft. So it's a very good business model to get into. Again, and this time we're talking about a single hop SATCOMS link. If there's monitoring a pipeline, for example, on the, lower, on the left-hand side there is a uh, pumping station. You've got an oil a pipeline sitting, uh, running along there. And typically what you have is a fixed ground control station. So it's in an office. So we have the ground control station shown lower left in an office. The unmanned aircraft goes up to the satellite. It's relayed, gets into the internet. So it goes down to Holland into the internet and basically it's picked up in the office. So we have a single hop link in a oil pipeline monitoring situation. I want to look at land and maritime border patrol. Now, here is a difference, because in this particular activity, what we're trying to do is relay high-definition video of, for example, ships of land back to ground. And we need it quickly. We can't wait for the plane to land and we can pick up the photographs, because we're trying to pick up a pirate ship, for example, or shipping in general. We need bandwidth. And you're talking about at least 8 megabit per second for high-definition compressed band, uh, uh, data. It's an example of a, what's called a KA band, very high frequency uh, satcoms. It's used a different satellite to what's called L band. L band is typically 1.6 gigahertz. KA band is typically above 10 gigahertz. You can have a small antenna, but those antenna are, that, that terminal weighs a lot, talking about 20 kilograms plus, and it's very expensive. You're talking about, just give roughly, uh, give you an idea, $350,000 just for the hardware. That's not for what they call line rental, basically your connection to the satellite. They're very expensive, very heavy. And that's an example uh, that you see the, in the Predator. So 
Top left, not very clear, but that, for example, was an uh, example taken of monitoring the Mediterranean. We see the information that comes back is a combination of telemetry. Left-hand side is actual video. It can be thermal imaging, so 640 by 480 is uh, thermal imaging. It can be high-definition video that's coming back, so you can actually identify ships. And what you get is what's called AIS, which is an automatic identification system. Those ships that send you back AIS information, you can assure that they are pretty good, they're okay. It's the ships that don't send AIS that you really want to look at carefully. So you get a whole load of ships, and you want to spot who's not sending back an, an information, like interrogation information, and just see what, what's going on with those particular ships. But a huge amount of information comes back, and that's where we really do need bandwidth. So if we look at land and maritime border patrol, now we're talking about the planes flying a lot higher because we want to see a huge area. So we have a high definition camera. We're look, covering a huge area. We want to look, uh, so basically flying 8,000 to 12,000 feet. Reason for 12,000 feet is above that, the air temperature drops below zero. So if you don't have anti-icing equipment on the leading edge of the wing, you typically try to stay up to 12,000 feet, not go too much higher than that, but just for temperature reasons. And the International Civil Aviation Authority organization, ICAO, suggests that the command control link needs to be at a different frequency using a different channel to the uh, payload data. So we're looking at L-band SATCOM's terminal. For example, the Cobham SB200, we're using the uh, Inmarsat uh, aeronautical grade band to send the mission critical information that really cannot have an interruption. We do have an Iridium backup to that. And that's essentially what's called the command and control. And then for the higher data rate, talking about, and that you see there, the left-hand side, that little shark fin type blade antenna on the plane, that's a Cobham SB200 omnidirectional antenna. We don't have to steer it, we don't have to point it. It essentially always connects with the uh, Inmarsat satellite uh, over the equator. Green engine plane, and on the right-hand side is the Viasat, as an example, simply an example, uh, KA band terminal sitting there, and it's about this big, if you like, and with a eye-watering price, and it's 20 kilograms of weight, and $60,000 per, um, per month line rental. Um, but it is a huge line, what they call line rental, but that means you can just send as much data as, as, you can, as you can send up through that particular channel. So it is a very expensive proposition to send the data. But if there's an interruption in the payload, that's not that serious. Uh, it's really serious if you get an interruption in the uh, command and control link. And since a satellite operator cannot guarantee 100%, it's usually very high, 99 points, you know, and so many nines behind that, but it's not 100%. So to get around that, we do have then the backup, which is an Iridium link to, for example, the Inmarsat link. <coughs> so essentially under that dome, and we show there, it happens to be a uh, Cobham 325 um, mechanically steered antenna, we would then put a uh, KA band, high bandwidth, uh, antenna to relay back the data, and we would also have the SP200 in there for the uh, command and control information. So you have a number of SATCOMs links on the plane, three, because it would be the, the SP200 for L-band, there's the Iridium for the backup to the L-band for the command and control, and then there's the payload, which is the um, top right, which is the KA-band antenna. So it's quite a lot, so hence you need a big plane. Looking now at small cargo operations, and simply for reasons of time, I don't want to spend too much time, there's a lot that can be spent about, talked about, uh, sense and avoid. I'll not talk about that in this particular presentation. We do have a workshop on that. 
but also on cargo. This is something that FedEx are interested in, this is something DHL are interested in, essentially is automating the transport of goods between hubs. There was recently a competition that was set up, it was called the Flying Donkey Competition, to look into the transport of goods. They were looking at two 10-kilogram packages an idea was transporting them through Africa. The, ex the competition was going to take place in Kenya, fly around Mount Kenya, pick up and drop off 20 kilogram parcels and demonstrate a capability with a target of $3,000. This was the target of that particular competition per platform and a um, pricing strategy they were aiming for, suggesting 60 cents per kilometer. This is uh, cents of euros um, per 10 kilogram package. And essentially going from village to, from hub to hub with a huge amount of interest from Swiss Air, for example, from FedEx, DHL. So the big cargo people are very much interested in the use of small planes that can just take things from one hub to another in remote areas where it makes no sense to try and transport them, either because the terrain is very difficult or because it's problematic. There may be low-level civil strife, for example, or people just stealing the stuff en route. So that you can send them in the air and reach the hub. Um, so there's a lot of interest in cargo activities. There's conferences on them in Holland that are typically take place. And if one's looking for a business opportunity, that certainly is one. It's hard to say at this point in time which application is the killer application, but it could well be cargo transportation uh, from between remote areas in uh, various parts of the world. I'm going to finish off with looking at some of the financial aspects of unmanned aircraft. And by the way, that you see, that's the um, uh, SP200 antenna sitting on the omnidirectional antenna on the plane. And one of the pitfalls is I think sometimes people have this view that unmanned aircraft or remotely piloted aircraft are cheap. And that is a really incorrect view of how things are when you actually get into making what I'd call professional unmanned aircraft as opposed to something one gets from the stores. If we look at a trend plot that uh, came out of the DARPA uh, and, and they had pricing of the various unmanned aircraft systems, and by system we're meaning the ground control station and the aircraft itself. So it also includes the link, of course. So we're talking about the communications link, the ground control station and the unmanned aircraft. And we plotted vertically in US dollars, thousands of dollars, fiscal year 2002, vertically. And horizontally, if we take the product of the payload in kilograms and the range in kilometers. And we put those things on. There's an interesting little on a log log plot. You get an interesting straight line trend. And now this, oh, this is not, I'm not trying to suggest this is accurate. This is really just giving you an idea of a trend. So if you're thinking, I want to, for example, send, I'm envisaging a four kilogram payload, 700 kilometer um, range. You want, one might like to get an idea of what price, roughly speaking, could you charge? Because it could cost a lot less. And so the question is, okay, now what can you charge by way of a price? So essentially we use that and then there's a conversion due to inflation and the like to get, for example, if you're looking in um, 2010, uh, $131,000 in fiscal year 2010. So that gives you an idea of the pricing that we're talking about. So if you're looking at the sort of, that sort of plane and previously mentioned sensors, you're looking at $200,000, roughly speaking, $250,000 for this kind of aircraft. That just gives you an idea of the price that we're talking about. And should a plane go down, and hence the focus on reliability, you're losing that every time. And for a business case to lose $250,000 too frequently, of course, is not great. Another cautionary note is if we then go to Cessna website and decide we'll have a look at the alternative, which is simply to go, go and buy a Cessna, we'll buy a brand new Cessna, thank you very much. 
Uh, and we look at the pricing there. We see that, of course, Cessna have very little non-recurring engineering costs. These things have been designed a long time ago. The capital equipment that's used in the production has been written off. So the production prices are very low. And you see that because of non-recurring engineering, and these are really experimental aircraft, non, uh, remotely piloted aircraft at the moment are primarily experimental. They haven't been produced in huge numbers. They keep changing, they keep evolving, but there's a huge cost to them that people try to offload to some degree in the price of the unmanned aircraft. But we see we have a, a tough time. So if someone comes along and says, actually, I've got a really cheap unmanned aircraft, my thinking is, whoever they, if they say that to someone in the know, they'll be told to out the door, close the door on the way up because this is simply not realistic. So the way in which a business case, in my opinion, or I would suggest stacks together, is they have to be used very heavily because the operating costs of unmanned aircraft are far lower than manned aircraft. I clearly don't have the person in the plane if you're carrying little sensors. So if they're not used very heavily, then if it's just a one-off type of emissions, you think just go get yourself a Cessna or hire a Cessna, and that's far better than trying to suggest that you can make a cost competitive or even be equivalent to manned. It will cost more, in fact if you're not using them very heavily. So you do need to, I think what the financial people call sweat the assets. You do need to do that, otherwise it's just really problematic in terms of the business case. I mentioned the cost. So if we're looking at it from a commercial point of view, we are interested in the reliability of these planes. And what has, and this is where pilots really disagree with me. <laughs> in public and private, they, they often agree. And that is that human error is a big factor and it simply can be situation, lack of situational awareness. We often have the problem that the pilot thinks the plane is far closer. If you're doing a manual takeoff and landing, the pilot thinks the plane oftentimes is closer than it really is. So land and be surprised at how far out the plane is when it actually does land. We've actually managed to land a plane on top of trees, as in a jungle clearing, and the pilot thought it was way closer. Bring it down, boom, top of the trees, and uh, get the tree surgeon out to take the plane out the tree. That was an interesting little experience. So, our view is a combination of several things. One is inadequate skills, lack of teamwork, as mentioned here in the US Air Force, some uh, analysis. It's a combination of reasons why, human, and even in man flight, is, pilots of, often do have a hard time, essentially. For, and the problem is, of sometimes, the more automated the, plane, the flight becomes, the less the pilot needs to do. So that when something bad does happen, it's a complete surprise shock and, 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 and things like that. And so, I mean, you have the Air France flight that went down uh, in the Atlantic, as an example. And one might say, well, you know what, this, these are amateurs, these folks who, who sort of land their planes on trees and the like. This is a presentation by uh, Dubi Lavi at the AUVSI Israel chapter conference. He's from Israel Aerospace in Industries, IAI, talking about human error, the factor of human error in the Heron 1. This is a $10 million uh, plane, uh, so it's no, no sludge, and they do know what they're doing. And yet you look over there on the right-hand side, 22% of their failures due to human error. And there's a breakdown of all the reasons why their planes went down. So there still is a sizable cause or factor associated with human uh, operation. And it can be simply that the ground control station is not laid out correctly. So the plane's flying very much, but suddenly the, the person who's operating it presses the abort button instead of some other button, and the plane aborts. That's still a plane. So I'm talking about the whole system, not just the aircraft itself. Now, interesting, and what we do require in this field is these, and this is a fertile area for universities and research institutes, is the development of a robust adaptive flight control system. So that even if you are suffering degradation in a system, that for example, one of the ailerons, you've lost an aileron for whatever reason, 
You want the control system to adapt in flight, in real time, to a changing situation. So the plane maintains a predicted and a known trajectory. So we don't have an uncontrolled crash. At least we can have a graceful crash. Or the plane comes back, and it manages as best as it can. And Rockwell Collins have done a lot of interesting and good work in this area where they deliberately, they had a model plane. They blew off the right wing. They blew off the right rudder for good measure. And they still had the adaptive flight control able to land this plane in spite of all this degradation. So it can be done. And that would help tremendously. And you can imagine from a commercial point of view and from if a civil aviation authority, what they would like is the plane maintains predictable uh, trajectory that we don't have now uncontrolled behavior of the plane because something bad has happened or there's a degradation. So that is hugely helpful. And from a commercial point of view, that's really what you do need is the robust adaptive flight control system. Right, final slide. Most, not all, most of the requirements for an RPA operating beyond line of sight, most of the requirements can be met with current technology. Technology is really advancing very rapidly. And I just want to emphasize one has to have a degree of caution in terms of the pricing and the cheapness of unmanned aircraft. They're not cheap in terms of the capital expenditure. There's thankfully a huge interest and growing, it grows all the time. So when I'm sometimes asked about the exploitation of this work and what is the biggest impediment to exploitation, I'm saying you're looking at it because it's actually the speed with which we, those folks in the business, can develop these aircraft for deployment. So either folk, people at Shell are just simply waiting for me <laughs> and our team to get the things going and to get the demonstrations completed for them to use. Uh, it's not as if we need to go along and try and canvas support. The support is there and it's growing. What we need to do is essentially add one further thing. So we can at the moment operate in segregated airspace. Now the problem here is when you're flying uh, beyond line of sight in unsegregated airspace, other aircraft, we need to have the intelligence of a bird so we can avoid crashing into, for example, the easy jet or the parachutist or the balloonist who may not have a modest transponder, may not have radio, may not have a whole load of things. The question is, how, do we, how does the plane sense another airborne object and avoid it? And that's the, current work, the work of current research, massively important. Uh, and once you have that in hand, and it's agreed by the Civil Aviation Authority that that is reliable to the point of being certifiable, then we have the opening to operation in unsegregated airspace. So the interest is certainly there. It's just the, at the moment, my suggestion is primarily the absence of a uh, collision detect and avoid system that is being worked upon. So hugely interesting work. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'll certainly be happy to take questions and I've got my email contact there and I'd just like to say we are thankful to the UK Technology Strategy Board. It's now called Innovate UK for their support and to the European Space Agency for a feasibility study and a demonstration project. Um, and some of our people in our demonstration project are here in the audience. Mike Holdsworth from Inmarsat and various people from uh, Norway and, and, and elsewhere. So thank you very much. Good evening. Um, Joe, normally the uh, support ant goes first, so we need to mix it up a little bit next time. I'll go first. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the invite to talk to you this evening uh, on behalf of Arbaz. Uh, Phil Tarry, our chairman, um, couldn't actually be here tonight, so he sends his apologies. Um, you may have seen he provided an interview on the uh, Royal Aero Society website recently. Uh, I shall try not to go over uh, too much of the same detail that he covered in that. Um, perhaps a quick introduction. Uh, my name is Clive Bevan. Um, I've spent the past 25 years working for various investment banks uh, in the city, mainly in London. Um, until 2008, I was working for 
a lovely Dutch bank called Aben Amro, uh, and then Fred Goodwin came along and changed the world. Um, since then, uh, among other things, I've led the uh, investigation into the LIBOR rigging, uh, the FX fixing, um, both of which have proved to be disappointingly interesting. Uh, but for the past year, I've enjoyed being the Treasurer and Membership Secretary of RPAS UK. Um, so, as Joe said, uh, I'm going to talk about the, the visual line of sight um, craft this evening. So, that in the UK means under 20 kilos, um, flight times in the region of 8 to 25 minutes, depending on payload, um, fixed wing 30 to 60 minutes, um, control frequency 2.4 gigahertz mainly. Um, most of the guys are using 5.8 for, for the um, data link. Um, so that's within 500 meters on UK rules, um, up to a height of 400 feet, and daylight operating hours. So that's the sort of the standard operating uh, range. Under 166, 167, they must be flown 50 meters away from uh, people under your control, and 150 meters away from buildings that are and people that are not under your control. So it's, you're fairly limited where you should be flying these things. Um, so I'll give you a quick update. Um, on RPAS UK, then we'll get into what our members are doing. Um, emerging trends, a bit hard to give you emerging trends after 12 months, but I'll, I'll hopefully give you a, a feel for what's going on. And as Joe said, we'll end with some Q&A. So our chairman, Phil Tarry, um, spoke here um, last year. The association was in its first year, um, having evolved from a company called Sub20. Uh, which was set up by John Morland, who some of you may know. Um, at that time, we had 30 members. The committee had just been formed, uh, a group of 10 individuals with different backgrounds and uh, different skill sets, but with a, a common interest came together to form RPAS, which is a not-for-profit uh, association that would hopefully provide and be the point of contact for this sort of emerging industry commercially in the UK. So 12 months on, where are we now? So we've got about 300 members now. Um, so that's pretty good growth within 12 months. A mixture of sort of individuals, um, SMEs, corporates, academics, associates. Uh, it's a very active membership, very engaging, very supportive to help one another. It's been very rewarding to sort of watch how that, um, the association has grown over the last 12 months. Perhaps a couple of things to highlight. Um, last year we held a workshop with the uh, Remote Sensing uh, Photogrammetry Society. Um, that was our first organizational venture. It went well, it was well received, and we plan more for 2015. RPAS has just taken over the chair of the CAA UAS Working Group at the request of the CAA. Um, this forum has been a very useful forum as far as bringing, say, some of the interested groups uh, in this sphere, sphere together. Um, it does need more structure, and hopefully uh, that's something we can bring to that forum as we go forward. Um, we've been involved in the House of Laws inquiries. I'm sure many of you may have been as well. Um, we're attending the stakeholder seminar tomorrow, so I think the report was released a couple of days ago um, with some recommendations in there. Um, and we're also working with other groups. So we're working with we're working with people like the Poppy Factory, who um, you know, for injured servicemen uh, in the UK, seeing as seeing if we can get those involved in the industry, either by helping out with existing operators or to get into the business on their own. So um, 
Our PADS is also a partner in the Airstar Consortium, so through our business development team led by um, Sue, Dr. Sue Wolf. Um, we are involved in that, just in case you wondered what that stood for, that's the Accelerated Integration of Reliable Small UAV Systems Through Applied Research and Testing. <laughs> I didn't come up with that one. Um, basically, that's a, it's a consortium, Airbus is in there, Kinetic, Blue Bear in there, um, Southampton University, and that is basically, that's, a, that's a, a group that's come together to pitch for some um, government funding, which uh, we're through to the second round of that proposal now. So if we were successful in securing some of that funding, that should be available in September. And that's really to work towards um, developing small UAV applications within the UK and with businesses that haven't previously been looking at their applications. Um, we're also involved in the URESA Consortium. That's facilitating access to RPAS regulation throughout Europe. What our members are finding now, what I think we're finding generally, is that as the industry grows, the UK has a fairly good position with regards to regulation and operating procedures. Uh, our members are operating in Europe, they're operating further abroad, uh, further afield, and just finding out how they should go about that is, is a bit hit and miss at the moment. It's kind of who you know and who you can tap into. So it's, this is a project to bring all of that information into one place. Um, our second AGM is actually this Saturday, so it's actually been quite nice to talk to you next week, and I could have called up what everyone's up to. But um, yeah, so the AGM's next Saturday. Uh, that's going to be followed by a conference with the Knowledge um, Transfer Network on the 20th. And that's trying to bring together, again, users, end users of this technology with our members to try to sort of um, expand the applications that we're currently seeing being used. Um, network Rail, Marine Industries, uh, Manchester Fire Service, Coventry University are going to be there. Um, so we hope it will be a productive day. Um, lastly, we've been working with um, a range of insurance companies. Um, up until about four or five months ago, the insurance offering for these aircraft was fairly limited in the UK. John Heath was the main provider. Um, we've been working with them and supported by Bird and Bird to try to bring them more in line with, I would say, car insurance policy. So you have a standard policy, and then you can pick and choose depending on what kind of operations you want to do. If you want to go over water, if you want to fly near power station, you want to fly inside, typically you're quite limited. So we've been doing a lot of work with those guys. Hopefully we'll, we'll have something fairly soon, and you know, it should benefit everybody. So on to our members. Um, as I mentioned, membership has grown and continues to grow quite dramatically. So what are they all doing? Um, film and photographic society, uh, services. Um, as you would expect, uh, most of our members are using multi-rotors. Some using fixed wing, but most are using multi-rotors. Um, film and photo, we're still seeing this as the main entry point into the business. Um, probably, I would say, 70% of the members are in this field currently. Um, so why is this? Well, the, the industry itself was quite an early adopter of the technology and what it could be do. Uh, the barriers to entry are quite low. Uh, most people can operate a camera. Um, and there's a lot of entry points. So there's a lot of individual companies. There's no sort of uniformity. So you can tap into a lot of different places to, um, to get into this, this, this type of business. Uh, surveying is another good one, another early adopted technology. Seeing surveyors um, coming through, qualifying, using the technology to survey roofs, to survey chimney stacks, um, and the such like. So again, probably another big part of what our members are up to at the moment. So I guess interestingly, um, 
Let's see, that's not, there we go, it's gone. There we go, what else have we got in here? There we go, gone back to front. Agriculture, um, some of, our, some of our members are doing that. Callan Lens and Ursula Agriculture are involved in that side. There is a separate sort of agriculture SIG which is running, so we don't see many of our members on the agriculture side. It's quite specialist. Touch on that in a second. Um, inspection, we are seeing a greater move into this area, so inspecting wind turbines, inspecting solar panel fields, um, not quite pipelines that uh, Joe was talking about, but anything that's sort of in a fairly confined area, given the flight times, um, it, it seemed to be picking up. UAV, uh, Team UAV, Sky Futures, um, two companies to probably pick out that are doing, doing this kind of thing. Um, flare stacks on um, uh, oil rigs is a good one. Um, an AM UAS based in Oxford, one of our members, they were part of one of the uh, five winning bids for the network rail contract last year that was awarded. So uh, it was split up into five regions, network rail, a lot of assets that they want monitored and photographed and uh, UAS are carrying that out for them. Um, consultancy services. So we're seeing firms that specialize in consultancy sort of crop up now. Um, driven by a slight shift in the types of people coming into the business. Um, if expand that slightly. Uh, in the early days, you probably got people that were in the technology, they understood the technology, they built the aircraft, they knew how it worked, payload was secondary. The people we're seeing coming in now are more payload driven, but they don't know the technology. So what we're finding is that they'll come in, they'll want an aircraft or an airframe, they'll want it built, delivered, they want training, they want support service on the back of it. So there's some consultancy services that are sort of popping up to, to service these type of people. Um, and I guess most interestingly, I guess financial turnover numbers. So they're fairly difficult to substantiate, but a general canvas of the members from the low 10,000s into the sort of 100,000s worth of turnover. So, and again, really you're looking at sort of a business or an industry really that's properly 18, 36 months old. Um, so I say turnover. So let's just try and break those numbers down if I can. So what are, what are people charging for this type of business? What are, they, what are they going out charging on a daily basis? So I guess if you look at, um, let's look at the film industry, the best name one. So you've got a guy with a Phantom and a GoPro. Um, there's a few of them around. Uh, he's probably out there. He's probably charging 300 pounds a day. Um, in the mid-range, you've probably got someone that's carrying a small DSLR. They've got one rig, uh, again, probably charging 650 a day. Um, and then the large operators, they've got multi-rigs, multi-payloads, um, perhaps operating in congested areas. So anything from 950 for a, for a single guy. Most of the bigger rigs are, are two people plus, so up to about 2,000 pounds a day. Um, and then on top of that, you've got additional costs. So recently, uh, one of the members was filming in central London. They were filming on a film called Criminal. Um, Three-man team operating the, uh, the aircraft. They had 27 spotters for the day employed because they were basically covering all the door exits, all the roads. It was closed anyway, but the CAA were there. They were watching. So, again, you have additional overheads depending on where you want to operate. Um, so that's the income side of things. Cost-wise, so the setup costs, what does it cost to get going? So if we look at the airframes um, from anything on the small Phantom with a GoPro and a small gimbal, probably 700 pounds, 800 pounds to get up and running, uh, up to the larger airframes, um, two to 3,000, the supporting equipment that goes with that, um, control and command equipment, the video equipment, another two to 3,000. Gimbals, anything between sort of three and ten thousand, depending on which one you go for. Um, so you've got fairly, and that's without 
putting a payload on. So that's without putting a camera or a camera lens or anything on those on those uh, aircraft. Um, so you've got a, a fair amount of fair amount of kit in the air. Alongside that, uh, and in order to be able to actually operate these um, legally, you need to obtain a permission for area work from the CAA. So what does the PFA, PFAW cost? So about 2,500, I think, is the, is the going rate. So to go through one of the national qualified entities to get um, qualified, to apply to, apply to the CAA, um, to get that license, probably takes between two to three months, depending on, on who you use. Um, another, at least another thousand pounds for insurance annually. Uh, registration fees, another three hundred. So let's call it a let's call it around sort of four and a half grand setup cost to, to legally get set up to operate. Um, you then got your kit, which is let's call it between a thousand and fifteen thousand, depending on what you're using. And then you've got your uh, annual repair bill because you know you will crash. Um, <laughs> it's always better to practice on something cheaper. Um, but they do. Unfortunately, the technology is at the stage at the moment where you know we, you know, things still do happen. Uh, pilot, pilot error is definitely the main error, uh, but uh, it has been known for the, um, uh, the 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 IT equipment to sort of just freak out occasionally. Um, probably just a quick word about um, not our members, but but we had an interesting conversation with um, the uh, scenes of crimes investigators in the Central London Police the other day. They're actually, they've got, they've got three drones they're using for their um, scenes of crimes work. They've got a, a individually a designed payload that they're using. They go to the scene of crime. It's all cordoned off. You've got the guys in the white suits going around looking for splatters of blood and stuff. What they do now is they pop the drone up, relatively low level, 20, 30 feet. They've got the, uh, the imaging on the bottom of it. It can highlight things that they're missing, things on windowsills, things on bins, things a little bit above eye level. You know, they're using that quite effectively at the moment to gather data from the scenes of crime. So hopefully we'll be, uh, we'll be speaking to them a lot more in the future. Um, so who are... Who's the, uh, who's the client base for our members? I'd break it down into to, to three pots, really. The, mem the members that are developing their businesses from uh, an existing trade, so let's say such as Sky Futures, where they're flare stack inspection on oil rigs, um, or those that come from a film or photographic background, so people that have got a trade, seen an opportunity uh, or the potential to use this technology to improve a process or to save time in doing or to, to add something new into the process, um, and they have contacts within the industry um, to grow their business faster. Those, those are the firms that are doing doing well and growing quickly. Uh, second pot of people are people that are coming in, getting the tech, cold calling um, firms saying, look, you know, we can help you, we can do this for you, we can do that for you. Again, it's, it's a struggle, but you only need to get one lucky break and, you know, you, you can move forward quite quickly. Um, and then reverse inquiry. So like the network rail contract that was issued last year, you, you reverse inquiry coming in from different sectors. Different sectors are sort of waking up to the technology, um, media companies especially. Um, Education remains key, especially with the third group, uh, especially with the film and the photo industry. You know, typically you'll get a lot of requirements to uh, to do certain jobs that the current regulations don't cover, uh, and indeed probably future regulations will never cover. So uh, education does remain uh, an issue for the members uh, when engaging with work. Um, and I think if I had to categorize how we would class the members, typically they are the data collectors 
they're using they're using these platforms to collect data to hand off to a third party. It's very few of them are actually um, manipulating that data for an end, end user. So whether they're taking pho uh, photographs and handing it off to um, uh, you know surveyors to manipulate the 3D models or film that's going off to film film works or lidar imaging that's going off to be processed. So they are they're they're, they're a data collection service currently. Uh, and as Joe mentioned earlier, data privacy is becoming um, more of an issue um, that people are having to be aware of when they're out filming. Uh, and, but as long as they're not retaining the images, uh, it's not so much of a problem. But, but typically what you find is that you, you, you do a job for someone, two years later they call you up and say they've accidentally deleted it and do you have the original copy? So um, it'll, 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 it'll come to pass. Um, so challenges ahead. Um, Congested air operations um, is going to keep us busy for the next few months while the CAA review the first raft of uh, uh, congested area operating um, safety case, KIOSC. Interesting name, really. Um, submissions, which I'm sure they won't be. I think they might actually have renamed it. I think they may have taken note and renamed it. Um, and this is, this is a step on. So this is for operators that want to operate um, within the 166-167 rules, so within those operating distances we touched on to start with. Um, so, for instance, BB Stratus, uh, one of our members, is first operator to receive the approval. Their approval will allow them to fly within 10 meters of someone under their control. It allows them to fly to 600 feet, and it allows them to operate at night. So, three nice, clear requirements in the, uh, in the submission, but something that currently you're not allowed to do under the standard approvals. The CAA used to basically um, give one-off approvals, so you'd apply to them, give your case, they'd come back and say whether they approved you to operate in, in a certain manner. Um, the feeling is now, or the, the intention now, is that you will apply for a chaos approval with your, with your safety case. That will be valid for a year. Um, and then um, you go back and you have it reviewed. Interesting that we conducted a, a survey recently of our members and, and also we included the, the uh, FPV, the first person view community. Um, we got over 600 replies um, and the question was around regulation. And it came back, we had quite a common theme which came back about the regulations as they stand currently. And everyone, everyone felt the regulations were adequate as they stood. However, they just, you know, they're adequate if you actually knew about them. But they weren't being enforced well enough. So I think that perhaps as we go forward, um, we'll find that um, we'll find those regulations hopefully being enforced a lot better than they are currently. Um, emerging trends. Oops. So maybe a little early to uh, discuss emerging trends after 12 months, but um, despite challenges, we're already seeing growth trends. Uh, for example, greater cooperation across um, operators. Um, we're seeing merger activity between one or more SMEs, uh, whether to bid for contracts or just to be able to provide a wider uh, market coverage through location or equipment. Uh, more work undertaken, as I said, in Europe and further afield. Um, this is giving rise to interesting problems around insurance, uh, battery transport and the likes, and getting, getting approvals in those countries. So, um, but we are seeing... We are seeing some of the SMEs starting to starting to come together um, and, and work as a larger company. If you look at the flying days that are available in this country to these aircraft, um, typically you're looking at about 100, 110 flying days, I would say, uh, looking back over the last sort of 12 to 18 months. Um, 
if you've got if you're a single guy and you're working on your own and you've got 110 days and you can fly 110 days and that's great and that's that's you are then limited to how far you can go so we're seeing people come together working together um and i think that's great and i think that's definitely the way of the future uh, of the industry um emerging trends so like the caa list for um approved operators we're probably seeing about a 15 to 20 percent dropout in the first year um, from the members. So why was this? And it's, it is, let's say, this is this is taken from a fairly small sample. But basically, some of the operators have underestimated the administrative process involved. People just thought, great, I'll get a, I'll get a UAV, I'll go fly, and I'll give people some some imagery, and that's great. But actually, there's there's, there's a lot of paperwork that goes along with it. Um, lower than f expected financial reward. Um, having said that, we haven't seen a price rush to the bottom. Um, what we are seeing is the right, right teams who can actually deliver the right uh, images are seeing repeat business at a higher price point. Um, so that, that's, I think that's quite interesting. Uh, you know, with, the, with the flux coming into the market, you would have thought perhaps the prices would drop, but they haven't. They don't seem to be at the moment. Um, Companies reverting to hiring operators rather than maintaining their own setups, so especially with film companies. What happened was they went out, they all bought their own equipment. It was great. They flew it once, put it in the back of a van, got it out to use again in 12 months' time. It didn't work, or the guy that was flying it has left. Um, so now they've got all this equipment and they're not using it. So we're seeing a number of, um, number of contacts coming back to us saying, yes, well, we used to do it. We don't do it anymore. We'd rather just hire someone in for a day or two days to do a specific piece of work. Um, and consolidation, as I mentioned before. The consolidation of companies um, obviously means less people out there um, with PFAWs. Um, so before we get into questions, perhaps just a, a quick nod to the future before we wrap up. Um, I think the next 12 months will probably be as exciting as the last 12 months. Um, I think we will see the sense and the void coming to the fore. Uh, I had, a, I intended a very interesting seminar um, with the chaps from Oxford University a couple of weeks ago at the London Tech Campus, uh, showing off their early prototype. So, um, you know, it was, was, was very impressive. And they were there with uh, Team UAV, who, who are their partners. And, um, you know, what they're working on, and Team UAV do some, some flare stack inspections, they do all sorts of things. And what they're working on is, Ideally, they'd like to be able to sort of turn up. So let's take lamppost inspection. Turn up to lamppost. You haven't got a cherry picker. You haven't got a ladder. You turn up. You've got a car. You open the bonnet. You open the boot. You pull out your drone. Um, point your drone at the lamppost. Up on your iPad. Recognizes lamppost. Bing. Right. Chuck it in the air. It's pre-programmed to recognize lamppost. It flies around the lamppost. Is the bulb broken? Is the glass broken? Is it still working? Comes back to you. That data gets relayed, you put it in your station, relayed back to, to head office, all done, dusted, move on to the next one. So two, three minutes of work, um, much easier than putting up ladder. So it's that, it's that pre-programmed flight around specific objects. It's taking the pilot out of the equation is what they're trying to do. And, uh, you know, it's a, they're a very energetic and very engaging bunch of people, and I think that, uh, you know, we'll see great things from them this year. Um, I think if RPAS had a wish list, um, I think we'll see, or we hope to see, um, some development in battery technology this year. Um, not just through having 
ever bigger packs to, to put on the on the aircraft, but actually, you know, a new technology that um, will allow the, the the aircraft to fly for longer. Um, and we'd we'd love to see some triple redundancy flight controllers. So there's at the moment there's a there's a trend to put two flight controllers on these systems so that if one loses loses out the other one kind of hooks in. But we'd like to see three. We'd like to see a voting system. So we'd like to see triple redundancy flight controllers coming in, and I think which would take out you know some of the uh, some of the crash instances we are we are seeing. Um, so that's it from me. Thanks very much indeed for having us to, to talk to you today. Um, very much look forward to cooperating with the Royal Air Society as we go forward. Um, I'm sure we'll take some questions. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.